looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Make Money Make Sense. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. Today's guest is an awesome guest. His name is Scott Choppin. He's the founder of Urban Pacific. Uh, They're a developer over on the West Coast, and he talks about these cool townhouse condos that he builds, develops, and he rents out for his portfolio. So he's going to dive into all that and workforce housing and what that means. I hope you guys do enjoy this episode. Scott brings a lot of value to the show. If you guys do have a quick minute, stop over to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, write us a review as it always does help out the show, and let's get to the episode. Welcome in, Scott. Alrighty, guys, welcome back to another episode. Today's guest is Scott Choppin. Scott's in SoCal. He's coming to us. Scott, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to my audience? Yeah, sure thing, Dante. Appreciate the invite, first off. Um, you know, very glad to be here. Yeah, so just by a little bit of background about me, um, you know, basically career uh, focus has been real estate development really since I was 18 years old. Um, so that now puts me something above 35 years uh, in the business and in, in various forms. Um, basically, I had a family background in the real estate development business. So my dad, Carrie, and my uncle Mike were both developers in their own right, and that you know gave me a background about you know generally as a kid what you would know a developer does. Right. And then uh, by the time I got to about 18 years old, you know, I spent a couple of years just you know working. Um, you know, moved out of the house and decided I want to be on my own. So I worked in the trades for a couple of years. And that was a good time for me because I like, I'm just, a, I read a lot, you know, just naturally. And I got on this kick of reading real estate books, sort of the old school fifties era, you know, how to make a million dollars investing in real estate on the weekends type stuff. Right. If you yep. looked at it now, you'd be like, wow. Uh, but I, what was key for me is I had a background in real estate, but this gave me like started to open my eyes about what, entrepreneurs and real estate did like what deal makers do right. how you transact and create value and, and produce a profit from that and that wasn't something i necessarily held as a kid although growing up in a real estate family um that was you know that was something that was an eye-opener for me so really from that period on i i designed my my college uh you know career and then ultimately f- uh, first few years in the industry to work professionally for other real estate developers and development companies uh, to really build a, a very solid base of knowledge in the real estate development business. Because what I did know from watching my family work is that real estate development was a very risky um, business right. and it could go against you very easily. The market changes, politics change, uh, you know, whatever change. I mean, it could be anything and everything that changes. And so like I, I made it my mission to get, you know, really several years of background working for other people. And then that took me through about the year 2000. And then I uh, left uh, my last job uh, working for a professional real estate development company to form what is now the Urban Pacific Group of Companies. And uh, now that puts us in our 20th year of operation this year, this March. Wow. Congratulations on that. 20 years, uh, basically on your own or doing your own thing. That's yeah. pretty impressive. 
Um, so basically you've been doing this since you were pretty young. You always saw it going on. So tell me a little bit real quick, when you were younger, what kind of development was your family doing and where was that located? Yeah. So growing up, it was a combination of apartment development, uh, which was uh, part of what my uncle did. And then my dad really focused on exclusively. And then my uncle, Mike also did a lot of commercial office. Um, okay. So, you know, think you're, you know, late seventies, eighties era, you know, commercial office building really, you know, at the heyday, the, the, you know, the peak of what I would consider to be the commercial office market. Right. Um, and so that was, you know, really the, the, you know, they did various other things, but nothing worth mentioning it. So apartments and commercial right. office. Okay. Well, awesome. And so over at urban Pacific, what are you guys doing right now? What are you guys mm -hmm. focusing on? So I'll answer it a couple of different ways. So we've always had a mission to build in the urban environment, hence the name, right? You right. Named, named it to that focus. So in 2000, when I formed the company, there was, that was very, very early on in the, in this movement of, you know, demographically and, and economically from suburbs into the cities. And although it had, you know, probably predated that, you know, some period of time, this was really a time where people were like, oh, I want to live in downtown LA or downtown Long Beach. And that wasn't traditionally like what people chose. And so right. we were very, you know, on the cutting edge of that and did, you know, numerous projects in places like downtown LA, downtown Long Beach. And then we did, we basically doing that the entire time up to, and, and then this is the second part of the answer, about four years ago, um, late 2016, early 2017, we're finishing, you know, development cycle of several, you know, new construction ground up, you know, apartment assets, um, and really got started to get the inkling that the market was starting to come back, right? Like think post 2008, around 2011 is when the Southern California market really started to recover enough to say, oh, this is worth developing, you know, we could, we could have a relative comfort that, you know, rents would, would be solid and the rents were, were always really solid, but, you know, we could go, Oh, we're, we're out of this recession. We've recovered enough to start to have a story around doing development projects. By about 2016, there was a lot of product coming into the market. A lot of developers were starting up projects, a lot in the pipeline. And really for us, we go, look, you know, this is never, we, we we're not a, company that wanted to compete head to head with big, you know, Trammell Crow and Holland Partners, like the big apartment development shops. Right, right. We're like niches. We'd like to be a common, um, hence urban, you know, so, so long ago. Um, so we basically made the, uh, the decision to divest ourselves of all of our development projects. So we just said, Hey, look, you know, we're going to sell everything off. It was actually a perfect time to sell, you know, I mean, the market matured, you know, even, even past that into 2017 and 2018, but it was a good time. You know, we had bought, you know, late stage distressed asset type projects from 2009, 2010, started those up in 2011 through 2013. So in 2016, wow. we started to really think about like, what would be a model that we could focus on that wasn't uh, a true affordable housing, which is very competitive in California, nor is it, you know, true market rate where all these big players are, you know, starting to pile in, right? Like, right. A, you know, studio, one bedroom podium type project. And so we started to focus on this middle market concept, right? Like working families, you know, think blue collar working class families, multi-generational, you know, in Southern California, probably be Hispanic families. And we started to look at and go, look, there's not anybody serving this demographic. There's nobody building housing for families or housing for middle income families. And so we developed a handful of assets in the beginning, what we call our demonstration phase of what ultimately turned out to be our urban townhouse model or UTH that's our name for our workforce housing product. 
and really have been running with that ever since. So now four years in, uh, we've developed several projects. Uh, we've sold, you know, uh, a few. Um, we're, you know, going to hold really the rest. Uh, as of about two years ago, we're going to long-term hold everything. Awesome. And really, we're totally focused on this, you know, middle market, uh, new construction workforce housing marketplace, like entirely. We're not going to do anything else. Okay. So I, I know it sounds kind of self-explanatory, but someone that's listening that doesn't understand, what is workforce housing? What does that consist yeah. of? No, great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, so a lot of different definitions of workforce housing. Our definition is basically, you know, has a few different parts of it. But first is what I already mentioned, which is it's serving incomes that are between true affordable and market rate, right? So mm-hmm. blue collar, right? Working class people, they make too much money to afford true affordable housing, right? They over income for that qualification. Right. Um, that are probably are not going to live in the sexy high-rise building in downtown LA. These are families. They got kids, right? They got grandparents and in-laws living with them, hence multi-generational. Right, so there's right. that sort of sits in between those two in a market rate standpoint, generally 80 to 120% of median income is the incomes you can think of, but also middle market in the sense that, that we build that townhouse product. So UTH is a five bedroom, four bath, three-story townhouse. Wow. Uh, think a row home style, right? If you're going to look back east, it would be row homes. Um, in California, we call it attached product, which traditionally is a for sale model in California, right? People right. build that, sell it. We're building yep. it to rent it, right? Hmm. Um, so we sit in between a house and like an apartment block, right? We're a middle density, right? You got a front door that goes outside. You got a garage door for a two-car garage that goes out in the driveway in the back, that kind of thing. Um And then, you know, we're a middle density product, right? So again, you know, houses are low density, high rises are high density. We're about 22 to the acre. Um, In fact, there's a terminology people call missing middle, right? Like if you, if you track any Yimby folks, yes, in my backyard, you know, people that are like advocating to, to build more housing of all Mm -hmm. types in markets like California, there's a younger generation that's like, we're being priced out you guys got to build more housing, the development marketplace, the, particularly the, the, uh, the lawmakers, right? The state and local governments who resist housing in California traditionally. Um, these people are agitating, advocating for, to, to build more housing. So missing middle is sort of a combination of what I just described. But right. really, the, the main focus is the incomes, right? Okay. Multi-generational families that have multiple earners that can't afford, you know, necessarily the nice big house that houses their family appropriately, right? Number of kids, number of in-laws. And so that's really a primary focus of, of what we build. Awesome. So we, we definitely touched on what you guys are doing and you may have touched on it a little bit, but what is the reason that you chose this asset class mm-hmm. to go after versus just sticking with the apartment developments or anything else you guys are doing in the past yeah. that you really knew how to do? You know, we we had always done apartment development, so this just did a different form of it. But it, but your question's right right on right on the mark. You know, uh, predominantly it was to not be competing where everybody else was, right? As mm. a developer, like like the story of development is, oh, you know, you're in Dallas and everybody's building studio and one bedroom apartments and four and five story hot, you know, mid rise, and and people just do a boatload of that. Right. And then the mark you overextend to demand, so supply super saturated, right? Yeah, and then all of a sudden somebody's hurt, right? Last last company in, last guy in is going to lower rents the most. Yep. You know, the big boys can sustain rent declines, right, and still survive. Um, so we wanted to move away from that like high competition space. So think of it contrarian, think of it uncommon, 
right? A niche maybe where everybody else was. Oh yeah, most definitely. Yeah. So that's, that was our biggest motivation. And then, and then as we developed it, I'll just share this last point. We really have come to the like place of understanding that in California, particularly there's a huge and, and deep and systemic undersupply of housing for these kind of families. Like if you're a blue collar working class family with mom and dad and adult child and, you know, uh, aunt and uncle, they all work, right? Multiple earners, right? That happen to share incomes and expenses naturally, like multi-generationally. That's normal for, you know, different families, you know, in different cultures. And we're just providing a product type that serves that family so they can afford it naturally, right? They're not paying too much in their incomes towards the rent, which is a California story, like across the board. Yep. Um, so it started to really like, we go, oh, this is undersupply of market. These are, these are, there's a great social impact, you know, ethic around it. Like we're serving families that need this housing, right? Think of your family, you know, you get rent a house. Or you're going to stick yourself into an apartment that doesn't fit and maybe it's older, it's two bedroom, three bedroom at max. I mean, no one's doing five bedroom, four bath, particularly at scale. Not in an apartment, no. To us, we just go, wow, this is such a great niche. And in fact, as we experimented in the beginning, it really started to open up. Uh, Dante, we're like, wow, this is actually much a bigger market and much deeper market. And we, and I mean, we knew it was like intuitively, but as we really started to execute in the space and do the empirical research that you want to do and raise equity and sell deals and do all the things you need to do to, to you know, to be a good developer, we're really like, man, this story is so strong that we just basically said, we're not going to do anything else. We made a total full commitment to that. Right. Marketplace. You guys kind of niched into what you're doing. Yeah. Are you guys only operating in the SoCal market or what are you guys doing? Yeah. Where are you, so, so where are you operating out of? Yeah, no, great question. So SoCal for now, I mean, that's where we're based. We're based in the city of Long Beach. Um, you're working in, you know, central and southern LA County and northern and central Orange County. That's like the really our, our main marketplace. And UTH is an infill story, meaning finding underutilized or, or vacant land parcels inside of an existing city fabric, right? We're not hmm, going out okay. into the periphery to build, you know, green fields. Um, we we want to be close to transit. We want to be close to job centers. Right now, one of the things you, you and Dave Evans talked about, I don't, I don't know, was you or him that mentioned it, but this move from urban to suburban that we're in in the middle of the pandemic. And yep. I might just talk for a little bit thinking about that. Yep, that generally is true, that urban to suburban movement. But there's a lot of subtle detail that's lost in the mainstream media. You know, the big, you know, CNBC's, hey, everybody's moving out of the San Francisco city and they're moving to the you know, farmland, right? Like right. Yeah, I'm being a little facetious, but you get the point here. But <laughs> yeah. If you look at the reality of it, it's very subtle. So, right. If you look at Zillow, they do search of people who are leaving San Francisco, like, you know, the city, the peninsula, and they go, where are they going? Where's the search indicate that they're going to search for and then ultimately close. And mm -hmm. it's really like two or three cities over. It's like in San Francisco, it'd be Marin County to the North or Alameda and Contra Costa County to the, to the East. Right. So people aren't moving to, you know, the Midwest farm town. I mean, I'm sure some people are, but this is not the majority of the trend. Right. Not like people think it is. Yeah. Right. So, so actually somebody mentioned, I can't remember where it was like a, oh, it's a company called RCL Co. And they basically described it as urbanized suburbs. And this is perfect. And this is right where we live. That's why I'm mentioning right. it. So it's like, you know, the city over from San Francisco, that's really suburban in its mode of development, right? If you went there, 
there's no high rises, there's no, you know, mid-rise apartment blocks. It's, you know, two, three stories max, you know, low-level commercial. I mean, you know, in California, it's like every major urban metro looks like the same. You drive right. from town to town and you go, wow, there's no change from, you know, any city to the next. And, but what people are doing is they're moving out of the central core, central business district or CBD, we call it. And they're moving two or three neighborhoods over where it's suburban, where the housing density is lower. It's still got transit. It's still co-located to their jobs, right? Um, it's not so far out that they're commuting. And this is really the heart of our offer, right? This is where these families already live or where they want to live, right? And then one of the things I'll share with you last, we've had a huge acceleration in what I call location agnostic roommate situations. So it'd be like, you know, for a five bedroom, we just had a, a group rent. It was three professional, um, you know, sort of think white collar, you know, working folks. And they were, all their companies released them to work virtually. They said, you know, go, we don't care where you are, just, you know, work this way and, and work virtually. And so we're starting to get these people that are coming together as friend groups. Like they had some affinity previously, they were friends or they were roommates in college. And now they're all released from working in X or Y or Z location. And so they can now go join their friends, choose to live wherever they want, location agnostic, right? They don't care where they live. They just are looking for the, the connections to people and the, yep. you know, something fun to do. Um, and we've had a huge acceleration in that. And, and we knew in a, in a recession that people would be attracted to our units because they can share incomes and expenses across more bedrooms like that mm. is already existing. Yeah. Um, but we've had a huge acceleration in that people that are moving to these urbanized suburbs, you know, still economic sharing, right. Defensively against the recession. Right. So they don't want to, you know, afford the unit on their own or they can't, or they don't want to. Um, but this is a way for them to have a brand new unit. Like this is our product, brand new unit, you know, decent neighborhood, but it's like a B or a C neighborhood in its urbanized suburb, you know, close to amenities when they open up, you know, location agnostic, and they're just sort of hanging out with their friends. And then the last part is it's three people renting a five bedroom. Yeah. Two of the, two of the bedrooms are work from home space. Like literally yeah, home, offices, I got my home yeah. office. Uh, it's baked into the, it's baked into the cake already when we rent from Urban Pacific, you know, it's great. Um, our focus is still families, of course, but, you know, we're- Right, we're but you guys are being able to serve different demographics that you That's guys right. weren't even thinking of, I'm sure. And so uh, you guys didn't have to pivot too much due to COVID because- yeah. I mean, we always knew out. roommates would be there, but this acceleration and like this really, like people are seeking us out. That's new. That's something yeah, different. Yeah, that's great, great news. Now, with development, you said it, and most people know, you know, with development, there's lots of risk. So mm -hmm. for a listener that's coming on here and it's just like, I know nothing about development. I don't know what to do, how to do it. Talk about what some of those risks are, what yeah. come into play for a project if someone's looking sure. at a project like this. So, so I really, when I differentiate between like a value add, acquire an existing <laughs> multifamily asset and doing a development of a multifamily asset, really I put it in three buckets, I call it. And okay. the first bucket and, and the first and the third have lots of overlap between the two product categories, value add and new, and new development, right? The middle one is right. the differentiator. Bucket one has basically your apartment underwriting, you know, assessing rents, you know, delivering units to the marketplace that can compete. You can rent them and generate incomes, you know, your right. under, underwriting operating expenses, all that front end. Do the rents work? Does the thing cash flow running your pro formas, you know, depth of the market, right? Employment, all those things. Okay. 
And then the second bucket is really where I see the huge difference, right? Which is basically it's everything to do with creating new buildings. So if you think about it, we buy a vacant lot and then we have to design the building from scratch. We have to have the team to do the design. We have to actually have knowledge of the marketplace to go, is this the right unit type or is the another unit type? Right. Is this type? what they is, want? Is this what we'll get? Filled? Yeah. Is there, is there demand to, to sufficient to rent five bedrooms or maybe three bedrooms are better, right? Like that's a yeah. story we have to be in. And then there's things like, you know, zoning, right? Um, po politics, right? On a value add deal, you'd never worry about the zoning. I mean, you may check Correct. it just to go like it's, you know, what is yeah, it? But it's, it's an apartment complex. It's not, you know, yeah, but you, a hospital. <laughs> for us, what we're doing, right? Exactly. What you're saying we actually have to go to the government, say change, you know, in some cases change the zoning from industrial or commercial to residential. Yep. And we're in California. California is the worst state in the United States. For I'm in New York, now. brother. I know we, we got the same thing going on. <laughs> Where are you based? So I can track it. Yeah. So we're right in Onondaga County. So central New York. So not okay. in the city. Yeah. But yeah. not as dense, but still. You exactly. Know, I talked to somebody in New Jersey and we said like California, New York and New Jersey are like the worst. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> For that kind of stuff. So, so there, okay. So other differentiators. So, you know, you got to like the, the, the construction is a heavier lift, right? In a value add, maybe you're doing cabinets, countertops, appliances, countertops. Right. Maybe Lighter cosmetic exterior. stuff. We're now doing full demolition, new, new foundations, full framing, full systems, all that kind of thing. Now, when we're done with it, we have a brand new building, which is yeah. great, right? Yeah. Like when we hold it long-term, it's like for several years, you know, brand new building, you know, full of, you know, all new systems, the tenants love it, right? They got plenty of electrical, plenty of plugs. I, I toured a, a bunch of investors around one of our new deals and the guys are like, man, I can't believe how many plugs you have, yeah. <laughs> right? Like we're right. counting, they're like everywhere. And the, you know, they're like in my units, like I'm lucky if I got, you know, one in a bedroom sometimes. Right, exactly. I mean, how it was with construction 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah, totally different ball game. So, so that's bucket number two, biggest difference, right? Political, yep. like going to the city council and the planning commission, right? Politics are crazy. We know this, like from the environment we're in, you know, federally, but even state and local politics are super disruptive risk. In fact, if I were going to say the biggest risk to me in development would be the, the political environment for you to get your project approved, yeah. uh, the construction environment, construction costs, and then lease up which is, you know, does my unit fit the market and is there demand for it, right? Right, and is demand even shifted once the project's done? Yeah, right. I mean, you're on a two or three year cycle. It's like making movies, right? You start it a, two years ahead and deliver it two years later. Is there still demand for your product? Now, right. we're tracking it the whole time and, you know, the trends don't move as quickly in housing as they do in, say, music or movies or, you know, other creative environments. But do they really want another Star Wars in three years, you know, kind of thing? Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> like where we where we land is, you know, look, I, I'm always comforted or have a high confidence level in what we do because you go, look, shelter is a, hun a fundamental human biological need. Right. Like the need for shelter is never going to go away. Now the tide right, and the location will change, right? So we need to track that. And then I'll finish up. The third bucket is also what value add and development guys do, which is when we sell or refi the asset, what's the valuation given incomes and operating expenses, NOI, mm -hmm. right? And when we sell it or refi it, you know, are we producing a yield for ourselves and for our investors, right? Like those are those. So bucket one and bucket three are the same or overlap. Bucket right. number two is, you know, new construction, new design, politics, zoning, right? Creation of, you know, programs and all that kind of thing. Well, 
Scott, first off, you hit that right in the head. The, the whole bucket analogy, I think, works out really well. It makes things simple. And, and someone that comes on here says, oh, I know value-add apartments all day. You know, oh, that makes sense. I, I see yeah. how those overlap. So that's great. I have, I have no experience with development. That's why having guys like you on the show, I really enjoy because I also learn as well as the listeners do. So I'm under the impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, that when you guys have your construction loan in place, because obviously you don't pay for the whole project in cash, typically developers don't, you have your construction loan. At the same time of getting your construction loan, are you also getting your permanent financing in place as well? So once the project's done, you could say, okay, you know, construction's done, let's go in, get it appraised, see how it looks leased up and let's refinance it to where we need to be at. Is that correct? Yeah, so our mo- so exactly right on the money. Um, in fact, our model, our pro forma, makes an assessment of the construction loan underwriting and the permanent loan underwriting and, and you know, marries them together. Now, the timing yeah. is different. You get your construction loan, raise your equity first, finish the deal, you know, convert to perm, pay off your construction loan, right? Yep. But we have to know up front that the numbers work. Now, of course, right. people go, yeah, but your perm loan's in two years. And you go, yep, it is. And so you need to be careful and conservative. And, you know, if interest rates today are 3%, you better put it at, you know, a factor, you know, increase in interest rates as a protective measure right. in your underwriting. And in fact, some construction lenders I'll offer will actually look at your perm loan and say, is it big enough to pay me off, right? So if when yep, they pay get it off, to- satisfy it stabilize you know if the perm loans below the construction loan some lenders you know will you know decrease their loan or make you put in more equity to 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 offset that i mean we don't really have that problem right now like permanent loans usually are equal to or exceeding construction loans at least the construction lenders that we work with but it's like you look at the from the very beginning to like stabilized operations cash flowing and in our model we assess that entire life cycle day one yeah. So that so, we know that every part is planned. Like what I tell people is I never want to be in a deal and have missed a cost or haven't underwritten my perm loan and get to the end and go, oh, oops, our perm loan doesn't work or my perm lender won't lend in this market or they won't give me the amount of money I, I think. I mean, of course, things change as you go through a two-year cycle to develop a project. But part of being a good developer is really hunting all those variables and the information and the assessments of the marketplace down day one, or you know them, like our construction costs. We've now done so many deals in this UTH model and, and recent deals and several recent deals in a row that we have really good you know, cost, uh, you know, historical costs, and we do the same unit over and over again. So there's some simplicity that we build into the model. Um, you know, we know our, what our units rent for, we know what the operating expenses are. So we're like, we have the luxury of having performed a lot of the exact product. Right. So you can carry that forwards, but you know, we'll look at, you know, so to answer your other question, so we're in SoCal, but we want to move next to San Diego. Okay. Then we want to move after that to the Bay area. And then we've have done some early assessment of deals in places like Portland, Seattle, and Denver. And any market that has a, a, a basically an urbanized environment where you have high, high, relatively high housing costs to middle incomes, where there's that gap, is mm-hmm. where our product works correctly. Mm-hmm. So if housing costs are lowered or incomes are increased and that gap shrinks, our model doesn't work as well or in some cases at all. Like if we go where we are in SoCal to what's called the Inland Empire, which is inland, you know, if you went driving towards Vegas from where we are today. 
um, the model stops working, you know, several cities out from where we are now, because right. basically land gets cheap, construction costs are a little bit less, but most importantly, housing values and rents associated with those housing values drop enough that, you know, our model doesn't work anymore. And so you go, well, why does that work? Well, either people are making similar wages and living there and working in the same place, or they're commuting, mm, right? And they okay. work in LA and they live in, you know, whatever, Pomona or, you know, some of the, you know, Ontario or be inland empire cities. And so that commuting, they'll commute to afford the housing, right? That's an age old model, of course. Right. Um, you know, it, you know, on a go for basis, traffic isn't gonna get better um, you know, so, uh, you know, I think that's a, that's a losing long-term proposition. I don't, of course, I don't ever, if somebody said they made that choice, I go, good for your family. You got to take care of your family appropriately. Right. That's the choice, then you do it. Um, but we offer a model where people can live close in, in these urbanized suburbs. And in fact, our average commute for our families and roommates is 10 to 20 minutes. That's it. Yeah, that's close. Like, and and that, not to say none go long distance, but the predominance are in this range. You know, we did the research and that's really valuable because you go, look, the people are choosing to live in our units that are relatively close to their job centers. Uh, also families close by, usually some public transit available, you know, amenities are close by, good shopping, you know, the things right, that right. families would want to, you know, you know, call cultural amenities and, and other retail amenities. So this is a really important point because basically the families don't want to, this is my story about, you know, people talk about moving to the Midwest and they lived in San Francisco and they moved to Springfield, Missouri. There's nothing going on in Springfield. I and mean, no offense to Springfield. I've been there. It's a great little town. But if you're used to the cultural amenities on the peninsula in San Francisco and the city, you know, uh, unless you like are oriented to the rural lifestyle, people will still choose to go, oh, I can't go too far away. I still want to go to the 49ers game. I just will drive a little bit further, whatever. I'm giving you sort of anecdotal examples of it. But I think right. the trend for like moving out of the city, like everybody leaving the city to go live, you know, rural is, you know, sort of the extreme that I see in the media is not true. Okay. For for these construction loans we were just talking about, are you guys getting loan to cost on those, like eighty percent loan to cost, or what do the terms kind of look like on that? Because yeah, right that's now, pretty foreign to a lot of people. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So we're basically our typical model right now is seventy five percent loan to cost. Okay. So on a cost basis, seventy five would be loan, twenty five would would be equity. Yep. And we do, you know, the equity is a combination of our funds plus we raise outside capital from you know predominantly high net worth, small family offices some institutional. Um, and then- Is that with you know, the land cost rolled in or are you guys paying the yeah, land Yeah, that would be all in. So of 100% of your of your capital cost, okay. you know, of, your, of your budget, 100% of that would be financed through these two sources, debt and equity. And that's pretty standard in the development industry. Now, the other question they ask is what's the loan to value, right? So loan to cost 75%. If you've got a correctly underwritten feasible apartment deal, then your value should exceed your cost. Right. right. In other words, the whole model is build at five million and sell at six million. Again, well, let's just this. we'll stop yep. on that real quick just yep. to explain the listeners loan cost versus loan to value. You mm -hmm. see LTV, LTC. So what that means, guys, is loan to cost is let's say it costs a million dollars for the project. You're getting seventy five percent of the cost of the project. That's going to be seven hundred and fifty thousand. Uh, if we're talking loan to value, you know that's different because we're looking at the appraised yeah. value after the aspect, you know, we, right. we hear that a lot and refinance 
uh, when we go to refinance. So you could do open. the math. You could say if your deals were, if it's a million bucks cost, to use your example, yep. and it's a million two fifty of value that you created when the project's done and leased up, then you would calculate your seven hundred fifty thousand dollar loan both on cost at a hundred a million seventy five. Yep. And then 750 is a function of a million 250 of value. I don't know what that math is off the top of my head, but right, your <laughs> loan to value will be lower. And in a well, a feasible apartment deal or development deal where your value is higher than your cost, the loan to value should always be lower than the loan to cost. Right. And that comes Even to you guys projecting, projecting rents and making sure that your NOI for the functionality of that property is high enough where you can satisfy that construction loan. So it's such a cool concept. I love so it. But like really you said, both. lots of risk. Yeah. So both, it's really both. It needs to satisfy your construction loan and your perma loan. Right. And, right. But ultimately your perma loan takes out your construction loan. So you're really, your your perma loan senior in the underwriting process. I mean, the mm -hmm. construction loan comes first in time and that's your first loan to get, but ultimately you need to know, I mean, you need to know both phases work. So that to overcomplicate it, but your income generation and your NOI sizes your perma loan. Right. Right. And then that, you know, you, you to be doing conservative or underwriting, you wouldn't want your construction loan to be way bigger than your perm loan. Like that's not a good situation to be in because that means you put equity into the deal when you convert to perm or you find your perm loan. Now you're putting a big check into the deal. You don't want to do that. That's right. not it's a opposite deal. of where you're looking to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not to say people don't do it, Dante, but you know, it's like, you know, you not want to deal. If you're picking deals, you go, hey, I have 20 deals to work on and I've got, you know, two or three that are real this would be one of the variables that you'd look at and, you know, yep. not to say that always has to work that way or only work that way, but you know, that's a, that's a solidly, you know, conservative way to underwrite it. Yeah. And it's obviously what you guys are striving for, what you're underwriting for to make the business plan go to what you're looking at. Yep. Um, Scott, anything else you wanted to touch on before we head over to the next section of the show? I think you dropped yeah. a lot of knowledge so far, but if you got something else you want to touch on real quick, please go right ahead. There's a ton, Dante, but we covered a lot of people. <laughs> I know. We can do a whole series on this. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's head over to the next section of the show called The Curious Cues. So I'm going to throw some questions at you that we ask all the guests, and we'll get your answer for it. Fantastic. First question is favorite podcast you enjoy listening to? So, you know, I've been exploring a lot, but you know, one, one of the ones I recommend would be Michael Blanc's podcast. Yeah. And I can't remember what the name of it is. Um, but I, I like Michael's style and, you know, he, like, I, I'm attracted to him because of his podcast, because of, you know, sort of the whole idea of around syndicating right. capital to do deals. And that is a key part of what we do in the development business. So, you know, we're syndicating for development deals versus existing. Um, you know, I've been on Michael's, you know, podcast. He's, he's a good dude, good energy. Um, you know, he has a whole like network of people in the background, you know, deal makers, potential JVs. So if somebody's wanting to get into the business, yep. you know, that's a good place to go. Yeah. He's got a great network. I mean, I think that was the first ever syndication book I ever read years yeah. ago that I got introduced to. Great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Speaking of books, favorite book you enjoy reading? So like I'm reading all the time, but a few, uh, like one recently is um, a book uh, by a guy named Jeff Booth. And I'm going to look at the title real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Go right ahead. Um, so the book, here, I'll get it, please. so the book is uh, called the price of tomorrow. And it's a guy by a guy named Jeff Booth. And he's the, his whole theme and, and theory is that the use of technology and artificial intelligence is a deflationary mechanism. So, 
you know, in economics, you know, we're used to at least in the American and Western economies that, you know, people try to produce a certain amount of inflation, right? Like that's sort of right. a natural course and the Fed, Fed, you know, central banks are oriented around that. But I never thought of it this way, but, you know, think about technology where it's removing jobs or it's, you know, simplifying what you guys like you and me do instead of hiring that admin, like we would have done in the old days, we can just, you know, have Calendly email somebody and they can set their own schedule. So it's removing the cost of labor out of it. And, mm. and that his argument, and that's true. I mean, from what I can see is deflationary. And so we're in this weird trend right now, particularly where we are in the coronavirus and fiat money and the amount of stimulus going in the economy. I mean, that's one of the things that people are, you know, I'm tracking is, uh, in fact, I put it out on our Saturday e-blast. I mean, we put in like 35% of the entire money supply in the United States came into the marketplace, into the economy in the last 10 months. It's insane, dude. It's, yeah. it's crazy. And it's good because it's, it's, it's propped up and even increased the value of assets. So stocks, bonds, real estate, you know, for sale housing. I mean, this is a good story, but it's not a sustainable story, right? So what, why it was interesting to me is because the idea of deflation is very like not a talked about subject matter, right? Most economists are not talking about deflation. Now, most of the people that I track think we're in for, a, you know, maybe a short period of deflation if it happens at all. And then, you know, long-term, the stimulus is going into the marketplace and inflation and even hyperinflation is what some of the people are talking about. But if anybody tracks the crypto space and the Bitcoin space and looking at Bitcoin as a sort of value, you know, the idea of deflation and inflation, you know, really it's, it's we're, at, we're in a inflection point in, in the general economy in the United States and the world where so much stimulus has come into the into the marketplace through the pandemic that we're really looking at, there's going to be effects. There's going to be second tertiary, uh, secondary tertiary effects. And so just to have people start thinking about this. So this book fits into that mode. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I'll check that one out. Biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome. Yeah, several, <laughs> many. Um, I think where like, I'll, I'll tell in a story format. So, when I left my last job as a company called Sheriff's Regis Group, I was 32, which, you know, classically for entrepreneurs, the 32, 33 age group is the time when most people leave to become entrepreneurs, statistically, right. right? And, but if I look at it, I was knowledgeable enough to do development deals. Like I was fully autonomous to be able to, you know, go out and find deals, do deals, you know, put them together. Um, but I, but I, what I was sort of not paying as much attention to is the power of networks. And I mean, like groups of people that I worked with now I had mm. networks and I had relatively powerful networks, but what I tell the story now is I say to people, look, if you had the choice, like I would have, what I should have done had I done it more powerfully is I would have worked for another three to five years, knowing that I was going to go out on my own with the sole purpose of building my networks of capital contacts, right? Mm. Investors that got to see me from 32 to 37 work at a very high executive level. In other words, by the time you're mid thirties to mid to late thirties, you're going to start getting into those high level VP, exec VP in the development space, right? Right. Where you would be meeting these very sophisticated, powerful institutional investors. And then more importantly, they would have gotten to see you as an executive in, in action, 
right? Like you'd say, oh, this person performed, they, they ran a profitable division or their department, or we saw them execute on several deals. And had I taken that extra three to five years, and it would have had to have been very conscious, oh, I need to do this to show them that so they can build trust or I can build trust, you know, with them. Right. Um, then I would have come out like, you know, launch much more rapidly. I spent the time from 32 to about the time I was 40, really spending a lot of time to build those networks. And I, and wow. I did it, you know, and I'm, and I'm successful and, you know, we've got a great business plan and lots of, you know, great capital relationships. But if I had to do it over again, I would say, so the, the hurdle really is the simple answer is, is building powerful networks of people that know and trust you and have seen you perform as a, as an entrepreneur in real estate development and, and, and building those, you know, powerfully enough, which is enough people to be effective in what you, you know, whatever your business ambitions are, you know, if you want to build 5,000 units a year and hold those and own those long-term is different than building 50 units a year and the networks need to be appropriately, you know, built and the identities and the, you know, the trustworthiness enough to like have that be a, a you know, a well-executed plan. Otherwise you're going to spin wheels. And this is a classic story in real estate where people found the deal, but they don't have the capital. I mean, this yeah. is, you know, Michael Blanc's whole back office, you know, deal, deal making desk, I think he calls it or something to that effect is to, to help people get over that hurdle. Now there's yeah. plenty of ways to do it. I mean, it's not an impossibility and doesn't even take, you know, rocket science knowledge to do it, but it does take time and energy and money because you have to build a track record and, and, you know, trust of people that are you're very sophisticated and you don't do that quickly. I mean, you have to be conscious and build that over time. Right. That's great. Okay. Favorite non-real estate related hobby that you like to do. Uh, so you guys can't see it, but right on the other side of my studio here is, uh, I've been a lifelong guitar player. Ooh, okay. Um, so I'm a, uh, I'm a guy that r really loves, you know, sort of that, you know, seventies era, sixties and seventies era rock. And my everything. man. Um, you know, so, you know, Led Zeppelin, you know, a little bit more modern Stevie Ray Vaughan, although still, you know, older, but you know, um, that whole genre is just, you know, has continued to be a source of, uh, you know, just enjoyment for, you know, I've been now a long time, been doing it, <laughs> so it's still working. So hallelujah. <laughs> awesome. I love it. And newbie advice. So what advice would you give to someone that uh, is looking to get started in development or even yeah. they're in development and they kind of hit a roadblock and they want to get over it? So one of the things, uh, if, if people look me up on LinkedIn, uh, just look Scott Chopping up on LinkedIn um, and go to my profile and look under the place where I publish articles. And I wrote an article that addresses this question. It's a great question, by the way. And basically the article is six ways to build your real estate development career. And I give you know several recommendations of how to really start out, like people who are fresh to the business. This would be I got out of college. I decided I want to be a real estate developer. How would I do? Or I'm a sophisticated multifamily investor and I want to go into development, but I don't know like how parts, you know, the second bucket is a mystery to me. Right. Right. And so the article, you know, talks about several different ways to do it, but really it would be back to, back to this idea of networks again. Right. And in this case, it's a different set of networks. It's a set of networks of colleagues and people that are professional you know, colleagues of yours that you could do a joint venture with, right? 
Like people get stuck on, I'm new to develop, let's say you're an investor and you're new to development and you lenders go, dude, you've never done development. I can't lend to you, you know, you know, no right. track record. This is the time to work with people to get help. Meaning, Hey, I need a partner. It's got track record. Hey, you need another deal. Let's try, you know, let's transact that way. Right. I'll help you. You help me. And, and, and although you're getting less of the deal, you're getting a deal done right? And you're getting it done effectively, strategically, competitively, right? And, you know, this is, again, Michael Blanc, but he's like, look, get past that first deal. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you know, things will change. In fact, he has, I can't remember, there's a rule, basically, if somebody gets through their first deal, the likelihood of them doing a second deal successfully goes up dramatically, right? Oh, yeah. It's the law of the first deal is what it is. Right. Law of first deal. Exactly. And that's so true. And so then you go, what, well, how can I do that first deal? Joint venture, get a mentor, hire a mentor, um, hot, you know, if, if you got the capital, hire somebody who's really sophisticated in that real yep. estate development project manager, like go pay that person, you know, buy a boatload of money. Cause they'll save you a lot of money in the long run, by the way. Um, you know, consult with people, you know, we, as a company, have a whole team that, that, you know, is an advisory team that basically consults for companies that have to do real estate development activities but they aren't real estate developers. Like as an example, we work for a, you know one of the largest restaurant um, groups in the United States, and they are developing new locations or redeveloping existing locations. And our team comes in and consults for them. You know, like really manages you know parts of the project to you know right, do right. what developers do. Um, but that this restaurant company, and you know, they're like, hey, we don't do that. Like we're not real estate developers. We're restaurant owners and operators, and very, very good at it. Like amazingly, and that's a hard business to be good at. Um, so it's just this whole idea of networks of help, right? Like people that you know that are effective and powerful, and that will you know transact with you to you know help you do whatever you're doing. To not be shy about that. Yeah, no, that that is great. That is awesome, uh, Scott. This has been a phenomenal show. Love all the knowledge you're able to drop with us. I mean, again, uh, what you're specializing in, the workforce housing, the affordable housing, so to speak. I mean, that's an area that not a lot of people are doing a lot in. So it's awesome to get some knowledge from yeah. that and kind of change it up Appreciate a little that. bit. Uh, Scott, if someone's interested in learning more about you, about the development you do, or even joining you guys to do some investing, where can they uh, reach out to you at? What I do, Dante, I'll make an offer for your listeners who, who listen to the show. Um, go to our website, www.urbanpacific.com forward slash ebook. And uh, we're offering an ebook for people that sign up for our email list and basically is how to survive and thrive in a recession. And I think that's a very timely, appropriate, you know, ebook and basically takes lessons that we as a company and I as the CEO and entrepreneur in real estate have learned, you know, really through the 2008 to 2011 era. And there's lots of useful you know, things that can be done and, and design of companies and deals and networks, right, to make people more effective. Because the reality is, you know, we're very fortunate in the way that this pandemic is not like a real estate centric recession, right? 08 yep. was like the worst real estate recession that, you know, we had seen, you know, in, in, in you know, forever, at least in my career. And in this case, you know, as you probably observe, real estate, particularly multifamily is relatively unscathed. I mean, there's collection issues, but for sale housing is booming, right? I mean, who would have, yeah. you know, would have anticipated the uptick, like massive uptick? Uh, those are good. We're grateful for that. Um, but, you know, so one, you got to survive the recession, then you got to capture territory. And that requires preparation up front. Now we're in the middle of it. 
Um, but certainly in five years or seven years or 10 years, there'll be another recession. And I'm not a fatalist. I'm just saying market reality, economic cycles, you know, don't disappear. They're not suspended. That's not different this time where the, you know, the economic cycle is gone. You know, it's not, it's just right. the timing of when it comes next is, you know, changed. Is it sooner or later different? Always those will be, you know, differences between, you know, the last one and the next one. Um, and then if people are, when they go on our website, same uh, URL, go to our investor education section. If anybody's making the transition from being a multifamily investor in development, we base tons of articles, um, you know, tons of videos about like, you know, how to underwrite new development deals and, you know, how to assess, you know, this bucket two area, you know, land and zoning, that kind of thing. And then, you know, we have an investment uh, page on there, which we have several projects available for investment. So if anybody wants to take a look at that while they're there, uh, we'd be happy to discuss. Wonderful. Wonderful. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show this evening. We appreciate you and we hope to have you back soon. Thanks, Dante. Great to be here. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.